0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, dot the best in chat radio, designed just for you.
1: Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to herb expert Ann McCormick, and Ann is known as the urban car- cowgirl. And she is the author of Homegrown Herb Garden, which is brand new from Quarry Books. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Daryl. I appreciate being on here. Looking forward to chatting with you about
2: one of my favorite topics. Now, did you grow up in a gardening family? In a sense, I did. Um, I I grew up in a rural area east of Los Angeles. Uh, We had a vegetable garden and fruit trees. And there was a turkey farm across the road, and horses and cattle down the ho- down the way. I remember uh, my grandfather lived up the hill, and I remember walking through alfalfa fields to visit Grandma and Grandpa. Um, but as far as vegetables go, my earliest recollection was my mother explaining to me why it wasn't appropriate to pull carrots up to see if they were ready to eat. <laughs> I, I had to have been about three or four. I loved carrots, and, my, you know, I could see the leaves, and I thought, well, maybe they're ready, and so I'd pull them up. And
1: the mother just basically said, you have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> Did she teach you later on how to stick your finger down and see if they had shoulders?
2: Um, I do not particularly recall that, uh, but mother was a, a major influence in my life, certainly in the, in the gardening and the, in the natural world. She always had flowers around the house. She was the one that handled the vegetable garden. She'd grow flowers and bulbs, and I I still remember also the time that my poor father accidentally plowed under mother's newly planted um, tulip bulbs. Oh, dear. It was not a happy moment in our home, I can assure you.
1: (laughs) I I can imagine, because my husband has done some things like that from time to time, and I bet you those tulip bulbs cost a lot of money back then, too.
2: That yes, they would have. We we
1: weren't
2: we we were on the lower end of the income scale at that time, and
1: yes, I'm sure mother had saved up to get those bulbs. Yes. <laughs> oh dear, dear, dear. Now, how did you get interested in herbs? Well, herbs in
2: particular. Um, that wasn't long after I was married. My first career was actually in aerospace, but I had a, a broad range of interests. Again, which I I frankly credit my mother. She. She taught me about a wide variety of things growing up, and I I found the world to be an interesting, fascinating place. Um, It was about the time in the early 80s when herbs were becoming more popular, uh, and I started reading and discovered there was, you know, I would read hints and tips about things about the herbs, about where they came from and what they were used for in other ways, and I'm one of those when I want to learn about something, I tend to really dig deep. I didn't want to just know how to use oregano. I wanted to know where it came from, how people used to use it in colonial times, uh, what were the the history, history behind it and the, the the folklore that comes with it. And so I would I would just kept digging and digging, and, and I reached uh, what I called my well-planned midlife crisis. I decided I wanted to switch out of aerospace um, and decided to go into business for myself
1: writing and speaking about herbs. Aerospace seems to be aerospace to gardening, it seems to be a very big leap. Yes. I'm always fascinated, I'm always fascinated how people, especially writers, get from one career to another like that, yes. but aerospace. I, usually when I tell people about that, you can see
2: their eyes glaze over slightly, wondering how on earth I made that leap. But well, I used to, it's, but I, was, I managed computer systems um, in engineering field offices, and I remember once joking with somebody, but it was true, I said, beneath this um, this stern businesswoman lies a little Susie homemaker, and it was very true because I, I had interests in in the home aspects of life and and how people had
1: lived in the past, uh, and that's what I wanted to learn about. Now somebody is probably is out there listening and is dying to know about oregano in colonial times. So we're just going to have to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> You got us.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing, it was interesting. I've, I've read some of the earlier uh, books uh, around the time when the, the Northeast was getting settled. Um, there's one book called, for instance, New England Prospects. Um, that was essentially a travel guide uh, and a settler's guide for those living in Europe who wanted to come to the New World. It gave them ideas about what to bring uh, and what would grow here and what would not. Uh, and a lot of the European herbs they were familiar with would indeed grow here, and they did bring across, you know, the oregano and the thyme uh, and, and the, a, a lot of the common herbs that we are familiar with. They did discover a few herbs here, mostly medicinal. Um, they, there were actually, one of the things that surprised me when I dug into this um, was finding that there were very few herbs uh, from the um, North American Indian tradition and in their culture, that were of a cooking nature, that transferred over into the, the kitchens of the colonial woman. That um, they used they used uh, a number of native herbs for medicine. Um, because that was that was definitely something they were looking about. When you think of the 16th and 17th century, you remember there were a lot of diseases and illnesses. They had very little capability of of combating, and so they were always on the lookout for a new herb that could possibly save the life of their child. I mean, it was it was it was survival that was definitely an element there. But there were very few that came across that they also used in foods
1: in terms of seasoning. Interesting. I would have thought with all the rotten meat around, you know, when you have to preserve it for hunting, you know, between Ah. good hunting times, that you would (laughs) use it. Though I know the Native Americans used a lot of techniques for smoking and drying. They did use smoking and drying. And
2: actually, you have touched upon one of the myths of the herb world. Really? which Which is that herbs and spices were used to disguise rotting meat. Now... Think for a moment, put your mind back, and pretend that you're a 14th century English woman. You know perfectly well that if you feed your family substandard meat, meat that's going off, they're going to get sick. You're not going to want to do that. So, And you're going to know that spices or herbs are not going to change that fact. What people looked back and saw is they saw especially in the, the literature of the 14th and 15th century, remember, the people who wrote books and the people who read books were the educated, the wealthy. The average uh, day-to-day person, the average cook did not have a cookbook because the average cook couldn't read to begin with in, in most, uh, you know, every everyday homes. But it was only the cookbooks from the wealthy that um, survived to our time. And in those, you will sometimes see large quantities of some spices being put in. But part of that, there's a number of answers to why they actually use so much, but a significant element of that was also conspicuous consumption. They did it because they could, <laughs> and they could afford the expensive spices that were being imported all the way from the Far East. But it was not with the intention of covering the flavor or the the effects of bad meat because if they ate bad meat, they'd have a stomach ache just as well as we would.
1: Interesting. I always wondered how that worked, and it didn't make any sense to me. But right. that's the same myth that, uh, that's been repeated and repeated and repeated, and I can't tell yeah. you how many times I've read that. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah!
2: It's it's one of those that are, and anyone who knows about food history, it's it, it's kind of like a burr under our saddle. Every time we hear it, we just have to say something about it. No, no, that's not the
1: truth. <laughs> well, now, all of our listeners will know that that's not the truth. Yes, yeah. that that's fascinating. So, what? So, they did the common people use herbs for seasoning, or was it just the wealthy? Um, uh, most of the
2: uh, herbs, <clears throat> excuse me, the ones that we regard as herbs or herb- herbaceous plants, such as, the, as you say, the basil, oregano, thyme, things of that nature, could be grown in anyone's ki- um, kitchen garden. So, yes, they did indeed use them. Um, they tended not to spend as much time cooking and seasoning their food because they, frankly, didn't have as much time. Uh, when uh, when you're on essentially members of the lo- quote-unquote lower class, those who were, you know, the working laborer families, Um, the mothers, um, the the women, didn't have a lot of time necessarily in the kitchen. They had chores to do, too. Yes, they used a certain amount of herbs, but they were not, they didn't go in for as complex dishes as you would find in the great homes, the manor homes, who who had cooks uh, dedicated, cooks and a staff dedicated to serving up food for, actually in those homes oftentimes, you know, 50 to 100 people every day, because remember, in the great houses, the the kitchen would be not only uh, serving the lord and lady of the manor, but also all of the servants of the house, all of the field hands, everybody received food out of that kitchen in some form. And depending on relative rank, it depended on what they received and, again, how much flavoring went into it. Um, you, it's inter, it is interesting if you take a look at, say, cookbooks in the United States, just here. Just it, it, one of the things I, I love to do when I'm t- traveling and, and looking at uh, in uh, secondhand bookstores is, is some of the, the local cookbooks, you know, the ones done by the local First Baptist Church or the sure. or the Ladies League. That, that's where you see a record of what people's real, everyday, day-to-day foods were. And, and you'll find in rural areas... They didn't use a lot of spices. They were focusing primarily on nutrition. I mean, getting adequate amount of calories into the laborers, who were then going back out into the fields and, you know, harvesting the wheat and the corn and, and dealing with um, the, the work that needed to be done in a rural area.
1: I know that in spring, they used at least here in the South, they would um, cook up poke salad, and they oh, would. Yes. Eat and they would do ramps and things like that. What other things do you, have you found in your travels?
2: Ah, well, and now you're also touching on something which um, is is actually a, a very good thing. And it, in, Before the days of refrigeration, we had a much more limited diet in the winter because there were fewer things growing and fresh vegetables were harder to come by. And so as soon as spring came, as soon as things started poking up out of the ground, one of the first things they basically needed and and went for was something like, as you say, poke salad, uh, spring bitters was another thing um, that was uh, very popular. You know, drink your bitters, your spring tonic. Um, it, it sounds a bit old-fashioned, but in reality what we're dealing with is people who needed um, vitamins and minerals that so they could get out of fresh vegetables. We now know and understand that. Vitamin C... You know, and a number of those things weren't discovered until the late 19th, early 20th century, but problems with scurvy had been existed for a very long time, you know, scurvy being the deficiency in vitamin C. And people knew that if you had somebody who was ill, what
1: they needed was fresh vegetables in some form. And this was a way to get it. Scavenging for pretty much whatever they could find that was edible.
2: In the early yeah. stages, yes, yes. I mean, as soon as spring it came up, but then then the vegetable garden would begin to produce, and then they would have a more um, more of the the foods that we would regard as more common or traditional. But yes, in in the early stages, some of those um, herbs that they were able to find out in in the woods that was that was definitely a spring tonic and definitely worth getting out there and getting.
1: I remember my neighbor, my elderly neighbor, when we first moved here, would, would still go out in the spring, or she would have her daughter go out and gather things, mm-hmm. even though she had, you know, access to the grocery store and everything like that.
2: Right, right, yeah. When it was part your, your tradition, yes.
1: Yeah, it was just what you did. We're yeah. going to have to take a little break pretty soon, but um, when we come back, I'd like to talk about um, what people need to know to start an herb garden. And how might these? Are we using any of the techniques that the settlers have used, or are we pretty much all starting afresh? (laughs) We're going to have. We'll be back uh, with more of America's homegrown veggies right after this break.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to herb expert Ann McCormick. And Ann, right before the break, we were talking about some herbs that people grew and and um, that they foraged for in the springtime. Was that common all the way going back you know, into England, or since that was a milder climate, did they have more, and was that a tradition that came here? Uh, foraging
2: for uh, certain herbs... Uh, was always part of the English tradition, also mushrooms, remember, people who enjoyed mushrooms would go into the woods. Uh, In England, they didn't have as large tracts of woods, and actually, again, in England, because it was so heavily settled, the woods were very often the property um, of the local squires and the local nobility, so those uh, of an you know, the, the average Joe didn't necessarily have access to and could be accused necessar- of poaching if they got into the Lord and Master's uh, woods. But here in the States, it was a, a, a very different thing. And, and going out into the woods and, and, and harvesting occasionally was, was definitely part of life, especially if you were on the edge of the forest. Um, but, of course, the vegetable gardens and the, the, the gardens that they created for their own was a major part of their life. That's where they, they were you know edible foods that went to the table the seasoning um, a certain amount of simple medicines were um, developed out of what they could harvest out of their garden uh, and even some of the things that we think about in terms of um, things you might buy it at, at, at Walgreens or Walmart for the for the home uh, you know to to add add flavor to the home, uh, scent uh, for cleaning some of the those herbs were also used in that way as well.
1: Now, did the average person have um, – I, I know there was a big change with the Industrial Revolution, um, it, both in England and then here, where people didn't have access to um, the herbs. Was that a big health problem, or have you ever looked into that one? Uh, comparing the, the health of in, the before and
2: after – I think living in a rural area versus living in, in town both had their challenges. But, yes, as you say, the Industrial Revolution brought a lot of people out of the country into the urban area where they had had, had limit, little or no access to the ground to grow their own foods, and they were dependent on whatever was brought into the city. Um, you know, I mean, we, we, could, we could talk at length about the effect of the Industrial Revolution on the working class and, and problems of that nature, but, you know, Getting f- food and and having healthy food on the table has always been uh, a woman's challenge, wherever they lived and, and whatever circumstances they dealt with. Um, and it just just as now as, as then, having a vegetable garden where you could also grow herbs was a good thing. If they could do that, they definitely would.
1: And I guess the problems of the city are the same as they are now in many urban areas where people are challenged for land. But one of the things that I've noticed lately, and maybe the last decade or so, or maybe not even that long, is how many people in the inner city are starting to grow. And somebody, I don't remember who it was, said that herbs were kind of the gateway drug for gardening. <laughs> <And>
2: <laughs> I have heard that, too, uh, because that, that it's very appealing. It, when you bring home a plant of basil or oregano or thyme, um, you not only have a green plant but you have something that appeals to the senses you can you know you rub it you brush your hands over it and it releases the aroma and it, it attracts you and it it gets you thinking about what you can do to to cook with that i i remember once um, when i was doing a class at a, a local nursery and we were putting together a culinary pot with herbs and two you know they would go pick two or three herbs and plant them in this in this planter and this this young woman who had a she had a four inch pot of basil in her hand and the the, the plant was probably about ooh, five to six inches tall at most at most and she looked at me and wanted to know if when she got this home she could start harvesting it and i was like i think you should wait a little bit <laughs> but it's that aroma that that attracts the the idea of having these fresh herbs and there's also the the appeal of of growing it yourself and uh, that aspect of, of self-sufficiency that just is, is is appealing to the human nature and just you're right I think that the herbs are, are a gateway certainly a gateway drug or a gateway plant to other other aspects of growing vegetables
1: and and other edibles some herbs are really easy to grow and some are more difficult um, yeah. do you have any particularly that you recommend for beginners
2: uh, well for, for beginners yes I, I do have uh, some that uh, are are very easy. I try to encourage people as much as possible to grow them outside. I know I've seen these windowsill herb gardens and they persist in in selling them in stores, but on the sunniest window in your home, on the sunniest day, uh, plants that are just inside, on the inside of that glass are only receiving about 15% of the actual total ambient light outside. We, We don't think of it as being that, wide of a difference but this is what I tell people okay think about this if you're standing in front of that window on an August day inside you don't put your sunglasses on do you but if you step outside just on the other side of that glass you're going to want to reach for your sunglasses that your eyes are telling you what the big difference is and the plants very definitely know it now as far as uh, what herbs to start with the ones I would suggest are pretty hardy and uh, not as likely to be killed and also very easily usable in the kitchen would be things like um, parsley uh, and oregano. Most people want to try basil. and I encourage them with that. That, that is actually a, a good one to get started if, when you're uh, growing in containers. Um, but parsley, oregano, thyme, um, basil, onion chives because they're a little bit different. And onion chives is one of the few that once it's dried, it loses an awful lot of flavor. So having it fresh really is important. Um, but these are these are herbs that will survive a certain amount of neglect, which, I mean, we all do when we first start growing things. We we forget to water or we forget to check them out. Uh, and and, and they, they tend to be hardy and, and resilient to the, the vagaries of, of dealing with a, a new herb gardener.
1: Now, I, I see in the grocery store all the time they have these pots that are just cram jammed full of little seedlings. Is that something? <laughs> I was going to say, is that something that you would recommend, or would you send them to the nursery to either buy a packet of, say, basil seeds or buy a parsley plant or something like that?
2: Well, an important thing if you're looking to buy plants is you want to get a healthy plant. And if the plant has been stressed already when you receive it, you're going to have problems that you have to overcome. Um, And yes, you're right, it looks attractive to see several plants jammed into one pot because it looks like it's so healthy and it has so much greenage and you're getting so very much. But if I were to buy that, the first thing I would do when I got home was take it out of the pot and spread them out and give them room. Any plant that you put in a pot... You need to think in terms of how big it is going to get as an adult. <laughs> you know, you just, 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 just as with children, you don't keep them in, the, in the, the, the car seat until they're in their teens. Eventually, they have to get out of that car seat. The same is true for plants. They, they need room to grow in the soil as well as up above, and they just need that space. I would, I would really encourage people, probably most herbs... That, you know, by the time they're, they're moved into a four-inch pot and they're available for sale, there that's a reasonable size. Uh, and if they've been reasonably taken care of, you have a good chance of survival and for good, healthy
1: growth. I'm glad that you said that, Ann, because when I used to help out a friend in a nursery, people would come in and they say, well, I've tried to grow it, and I can't grow it, because uh, they've gotten the stuff from the grocery store, and uh-huh. they've got about five strikes against them already. Yes, because... So, uh,
2: the staff at the grocery store are great for stocking the shelves and great for, you know, finding you the right bread that you were hoping to get and going in the back and getting it for you and taking care of you. But that's not a nursery. That's not a garden nursery. And so plants that are you find at the grocery store are more likely to be neglected, frankly.
1: And too crowded. And oh, yes. they've been kept in those little glassine sleeves or plastic sleeves <laughs> with no air circulation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, I sometimes just want to set them free, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like know, animals in a zoo you, or something.
2: <laughs> I know what you mean. It's When I uh, I tell people, and when I talk about this topic, about it, you know, growing herbs, and we talk about um, those little herb herb gardens with almost no soil to speak of, uh, I'll pause and I'll look at the audience and say, okay, don't ever let me catch you trying to buy any of these. <laughs> I don't want to even know about it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it, you're setting yourself up for disappointment, and it doesn't have yeah. to be that way. No, you know, it gardening doesn't. is a learning experience. But when you have strikes against you, now an experienced yeah. garden can, gardener can go through and they can get a pot of this or that, and then spread it out and know how to pot it up. But for a beginner, yeah. um, you touched on a couple of things. One is, besides a healthy plant, uh, you touched also on the amount of light that it gets. So yes. most of the herbs that we grow need pretty close to full bright light, don't they? At least yes. up north. I know down, down in the south, particularly when you're in the southwest, um, more or less Texas. Like you consider yeah. yourself west, don't you? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm in the southeast, uh, and and uh, I know out in New Mexico and southern Calif- parts of southern California, if you're in full sun all day, those poor things fry. Even, except for yeah. our very toughest ones, like thyme and oregano. Yeah, um, you, you
2: have to think in terms, uh, that, that's actually, frankly, one of the reasons I always <laughs> like to know, where does the plant come from? If you know that the plant originated, say, in, um, like, for instance, lavender and oregano, or, or two examples of them come immediately to mind, they're native to the area east of Jerusalem. In in those rocky hillsides that um, unfortunately we see all too much in the news today, but but those dry rocky hillsides in full exposure, so they're more used to drier conditions. They're going to manage better in a southwestern garden, say, than something like uh, sweet woodruff. Okay, sweet woodruff, not not something most people. Um, cook with, and, although it has been used historically, but that's more of a woodland plant, and it is it is going to die very quickly. Uh, in, for instance, in my part of the country, it's just too hot for it. Um, you would need a, a cooler area, and you just have to think in terms of that. The difficulty comes when you have something like cilantro, which I know is the one that everybody really loves to grow, and in the South has a terrible time with. Um, do we have time before the break to go over the cilantro? Well,
1: we've got about a minute and a
2: half. Okay. This is one I often, uh, I, I, feel, I feel so much for the audience when I almost, nearly always have some woman who takes her heart in her hands and stands up and admits this horrible statement, I can't keep my cilantro alive. And I am always so happy to say to her, it's not your fault. When the temperatures get above 90 degrees, if you live in an area where the temperatures daytime temperatures rise above 90 degrees, um, early spring herbs like cilantro and chervil, um, which are really cool season herbs, they will set seed and go to, and die because they know they're, 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 the plant senses that the temperatures are going to get hot enough that it will not be able to survive the summer. So it's perfectly normal for it to do that. So what I tell people with um, cilantro in particular, it's a two-season herb. You plant it in early February and then, again, after Labor Day. So you have it in the spring and you have it in the fall, and then the cooler temperatures, you have success with that
1: herb. Thank you for saying that, because I know a lot of people just struggle with that. Oh, yeah. And they think it's their fault, and it's not their fault. I know. It's it's just like tomatoes don't like it in the wintertime.
2: Yes, yes. You have to. (laughs) Go with what the
1: plant needs. Just a, a little fact of life for in the plant world. We're going to have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk about some more herbs and, and myths that people might have about them and why they think that some are harder to grow than others. We'll be right back after this.
3: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
0: This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. We're talking today with Ann McCormick, who is an herb expert. And right before the break, she was telling, saving everybody from a lot of heartbreak, trying to grow <laughs> a cilantro. And so right. I noticed, I, I noticed another thing that happens is if people buy the herbs in containers, sometimes they're already so stressed out that uh. you can you can see that flowers flower buds are developing. And cilantro and dill tend to be two of those. Hmm. that I see most often, if they haven't been grown very quickly and shipped out and sold early on in the nursery. And, yeah. of course, once they go to that stage where they're setting seeds, um, that's just it for them, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's there's a misconception in the
2: public that a plant that has flowers on it is a healthy plant. I think they get that from the ornamental um, plant world that so when they look to buy, uh, you know, marigolds or or zinnias and they see uh, flower buds, they think, oh, great, it's a healthy plant. It's going to grow. It's going to give me the flowers I want. But you and I know that in the herb world, especially since we're, in general, we're uh, focusing on the leaves as such. If you've got an annual that's already going to flower and going, it's started its end-of-life cycle. And once that starts, especially with plants like cilantro, it's impossible to to turn the clock back. It's going to seed. It's going to die, and there's there's nothing there's nothing you can do about it at that point. Yes.
1: One of the things, though, that I like to do when I've had that happen to me back when I was a beginner gardener, I would just leave it. You know, I just leave it right in the garden, and then come fall. Or come a little change in the weather, a little damp spell. I would look out and there would be hundreds and hundreds of little baby plants coming up. Yes. That was yes. one of the first fun things that I learned about growing herbs. Because somehow <laughs> or another, my mother didn't grow too many. You know, we had parsley, of course. And I, so I knew about the parsley life cycle where one year you get all the green stuff and then the next year it goes to flower. And so my mother would sow a few parsley seeds every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so that she'd have a continuous supply. But we didn't grow cilantro back then. Mm, yeah, I don't think well, anybody that I know of had even heard about cilantro.
2: Well, yeah, actually, also cilantro being the Spanish name for and caro- not caraway, excuse me. Um, uh, coriander. On, thank you. For, I, my mind went to a quick blank. I understand. Was, I do, our, I do. <laughs> our mothers would have referred to it as coriander and not and actually as cilantro. Uh, and so that, that that's where the some of the difference also was there. But, yes, you're right. It, it's one of those that was not as popular. Um Actually, roughly speaking, between the World Wars, between World War I and World War II, um, a lot of culinary herbs kind of not exactly fell out of favor, but they were not as commonly grown and they were not as commonly used, um, which you can very much see if you take a look at the cookbooks, at the recipes of the time. It wasn't until after World War Two that we started to see um, a flavor coming back into the American diet, and then by the time we get to the Vietnam War... Uh, and the Asian herbs that started to come in, then we started to really see things blossom uh, from a flavor point of view into the United States. I've seen uh, a cookbook from about the 1930s for instance, for example, that had a recipe for meatloaf and for spicy meatloaf. And the only difference between the two recipes was, and I kid you not, half a teaspoon of pepper. <laughs> Okay, this is okay. a clue as to what they regarded as spicy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my yes. goodness! Yes, much, well, much. Too my, my mother, my mother's family cooked with herbs a lot all the way through, and I just kind of assumed that everybody did, but I don't remember them growing as many as is common now. Um. um so I, not, I think not there's a good another variety. Difference. Yeah. Right. At,
2: and I don't I don't know much about your family, but families that have uh, a recent um, history of, of recent immigration from Europe, some of those food traditions persist in the first couple of generations, uh, and that's where some of that come will come through. And then, actually, by the again, as I said, by the time that we, we get to World War II, it it became more acceptable to flavor foods more. Um, Herbs and spices have gone in and out of favor over the centuries. Uh, people, don't, if you, that's one of the things I enjoy about reading about this. When you, you get to the point in the mid nineteenth century where, exe- what they considered ex- excessive use of spices of their of their parents and grandparents, uh, meant that people suddenly started using uh, milder and blander foods. Spices were were connected with. Um, Excess of eating, and and if you wanted to be a, a few food purist, you would practically leave almost all of this out of there. But then the nineteenth century is when we started seeing some of the herb, um, not herb, excuse me, the um, uh, health food traditions, which actually still now exist in our in our culture. I, I, I laugh when I tell people, remember that uh, breakfast cereal was once upon a time a health food, as was the graham cracker. And and soda, those seltzers were health drinks, and we don't think of them that way as
1: anymore. I remember my grandparents still referring to wheaties as breakfast food. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was a, it was a special thing to be, you know, healthful. Yeah, it's interesting how even just in my decades of life, how food traditions have changed. Now we talked a little bit about about Vietnamese and Asian herbs. Tell me, tell me what you're seeing. Um, and tell me how to grow lemongrass. Uh, <laughs> yes, lemongrass is one of
2: those that has become uh, gone mainstream. In the, uh, you know, I first came across lemongrass. Oh goodness, probably in the nineteen eighties, uh, and it was growing in a, a neighbor's yard, and she was just using it as an ornamental grass, and didn't. I don't think she even recognized that what she had was something edible. Lemongrass. Uh, uh, the, the part of the lemongrass, the inner leaves of lemongrass, which are the light, very light green and more tender leaves, are used in Asian foods to provide a lemon flavor. Uh, primarily Southeast Asian cooking, Thai um, mm-hmm. cooking definitely uses them. Uh, the, the, the grasses, um, the, the stalks actually, that the pork that is actually eaten, resembles slightly a green onion where it's very pale white to... It's a light green mm-hmm. and then it darkens as it gets, uh, goes tall, um, farther up on the grass. Um, the tricky bit about growing lemongrass of course, and I, am uh, anybody who's grown it knows this, is that it has a very fine serrated edges on the lemongrass leaves. You can get a paper cut faster than you can imagine from that plant. Uh, so it's, it's one that you always definitely use gloves with.
1: Oh, uh, been there, that done that, that, and thank you for reminding our audience of that warning because I <laughs> didn't know that the first time I tried to grow it, and of course, you know they a lot of books will say, well, it's so easy you just go get some at the store and you plant it. Well, the stuff that you get at the store is sometimes so dried out that uh, it's yeah. an exercise and futility,
2: yeah, yes um there are a few herbs or a few things that you can take right out of the produce section and start to grow. Um, ginger root, for instance. Um, if mm-hmm. it's still whole and fresh and hasn't started to shrivel, uh, which is kind of like you're describing a um, those ginger roots can be planted and grown in a pot. I wouldn't recommend anyone in the United States to uh, attempt growing that in the ground because it's actually a tropical plant. Uh, and needs the warmth of the soil that a lot of us don't have. Um, so in growing that in a pot. But yes, the lemongrass. If you can, in a good Asian food store, the lemongrass is relatively fresh that is there. And if there's enough of the um, the root area that's still connected to the lemongrass, yes, you can try planting those and and having it grow. And sometimes it will.
1: Now, I think that you're in a warm enough part of Texas that you can overwinter lemongrass, aren't you? You can. And you just mulch uh, it really heavily and, and leave it in the ground? Because I yeah, know most of our listeners can't.
2: That's true. Yeah, well, you, it won't withstand a, a, a hard frost. Uh, and uh, you have about a 50-50 chance of it surviving here in my area. I'm on the border between Zone 7 and 8 here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, and so we—it's not uncommon for us to get an extended freeze uh, in the winter, and that would kill off the lemongrass. For somebody in a cooler climate who wants to grow it, the simplest thing is just to put it in a good-sized pot. But I emphasize uh, definitely a good-sized pot. Lemongrass will grow two to three feet tall. I mean, to the the edge of the the leaves, and it needs a, uh, an equivalent amount of a soil uh, depth. Um, that's one of the things I try to encourage people. You have to remember any plant that you put in a pot that you're immediately creating an artificial environment for the plant, and so you need to be sure that the plant has adequate uh, nutrition to draw from in the soil. You know, a shallow container isn't really going to cut it for a lot of the plants that we grow.
1: I think that's where I went wrong um, with my lemongrass a couple of times. I just didn't realize Uh how big a root mass that that sucker would get. Yeah, well, that the, it just gets enormous, and I've had it. The yeah. first time I grew it, I was told, well, you can just put it in a six-inch pot. Yeah, well, that works oh. for about a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because so it, the next it, time it, I tried a larger clay pot, and by the end of the season, it split the clay pot.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you
1: can think of some of
2: the ornamental grasses we sometimes grow in our, our gardens. Uh, those have fairly deep roots also, and yes, as you say, it needs that space. And you, if you want healthy plants, you need to give them adequate space in whatever pot you use.
1: Now, you mentioned soil, good quality soil with nutrition. What do you recommend? Do you have a particular mix that you like or, or a mix that you recommend that people make for themselves out of whatever they can get at the store? I do not have a particular mix. Um, I tend to be, I
2: guess, vaguely eclectic. My What I usually tell people is buy something of a quality nature. The, the companies, you know, the... The larger companies like Scotts, they they have their name behind it, and so they're going to want to provide reasonable quality. Uh, and and you, and you want to have something with adequate nutrition. Uh, it also needs to be relatively light, not overly dense. Uh, when I give a talk about creating culinary containers, I always tell people you've got three things in that pot besides the roots. You've got you've got the organic material. You've got water, but you also need to have air. We don't think about it, but air needs to be in the mix down there because air acts as a chemical catalyst for the processes that take place that transfer chemicals, the nut- nutrient chemicals, from the soil and the water into the plant roots. And I remind people, you don't think about this, but you, at some level you know it. If you We've all seen places... Um, where people have driven across some area, of piece of property, and the ground is so compacted that nothing will grow there. A significant mm-hmm. reason for that is that it's so compact, but there's also no air in the soil. Also, it's just so tamped down. So you need to have air, water, and the organic material to sustain the life of the plant.
1: Okay, so a good quality potting mix, and you don't want to—they don't want to go out and buy. Soil, right? I they know there's garden soil that they sell. That's not suitable for a pot, is it? It does not work. No,
2: uh, and it, it's one of those that someday I'm going to 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 get an agricultural expert and really tie him down and getting to explain to me the chemistry behind that and why exactly that's true. But yes, I know from experience, and I know from those who are better experts about this than I that yes, you need to have what's what is described as quality potting soil.
1: Okay, so we, they need a big enough container, they need a good yeah. amount of sun, and they need a good quality potting mix. Yes, okay. and, and,
2: dra-
1: th- and drainage. And don't forget the drainage, drainage hole. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can't forget the drainage hole. Uh, I think a lot, well, I guess there are a couple of things that you can grow without drainage, but um, most herbs aren't, aren't in that category. We yes, need to take on. a quick break here, but um, we are listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be back right after this.
4: This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree e Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com the best in chat radio designed
0: just for you.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Darrell Pullis, and this week I am talking to herb expert Ann McCormick. And Ann, you've got, you've got a couple of things going. You've got um, a great website called the Urban Cowgirl and you've got a brand-new book, don't you? Yes,
2: yes, a so homegrown herb garden, just just out this January. I'm co-authored with uh, Lisa Bacon Morgan. Um, the the publisher decided they wanted to do something a little different. They wanted to combine a, a gardening expert, herb gardening expert, which is me, uh, and a cooking expert, which is my co-author, Lisa. Who, she's a French-trained chef and does... Uh, a lot of um, great original recipes in the cookbook in the cookbook cooking side of the book. But the first portion is my part, where I talk about growing herbs, and then she talks about using them fresh in the
1: kitchen. Yeah, one of the things that I found really fascinating about your book is you mentioned that you like little tidbits and things, ah. and you've got a little section on all of your herbs. Um, Like about time, I think I I maybe knew this, but I'd forgotten that knights would carry a scarf embroidered with, uh, embroidered by their true love, with time and a bee on it. What was that supposed to signify?
2: Well, um, it was uh, signified courage and devotion. Um, A lot of the herbs, in fact, all the herbs really that we deal with have traditional. uh, legends associated with them and also what's known as the, the language of flowers, which are, I call it the language of herbs and flowers, where the, there's symbolism associated with certain plants. So that if you, um, well, we still use a little bit of that today. Red roses are symbolic of love. I mean, uh, we've, Valentine's Day in February, that's what, you know, that's when the roses come out. On military uniforms, you will often see oak leaves and the oak clusters for them, especially uh, some mm-hmm. of the officers, oak indicating uh, courage, courage in battle, and that's where that comes from. Uh, so there, there are, there are there's symbolism associated with all of the plants. Um, be, time also is, is one of those herbs that has been long associated with bees. Um, time was uh, was traditionally used. To encourage bees to go to a new hive, uh, beekeepers would grow it in the area. I know the Romans rit- routinely would uh, use that, and so the association with bees and time is, was just a very obvious thing. I, I certainly know the to- the bees in my neighborhood. There's somewhere in my neighborhood there is a beehive that is the McCormick Memorial Beehive because I can tell you they they come for my time every spring. You better believe it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me some more about. Things you, you in your book you mentioned about basil. Tell me the story about basil.
2: Basil. Uh, well, basil is is one of those that has a little bit of, of everything. Pe- people associate basil um, with with a number of things. There's there's various uh, varieties of basil. The Holy basil, for instance, in the, the uh, Indian culture, the East Indian culture, um, was is associated with the temples. Uh, basil plants were also uh, used as a cl- in, in Italian culture, having a, a pot of basil on the windowsill told everybody in the neighborhood that the house had a young lady of marriageable age growing there, li- growing there, living there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess um, she was growing too. <laughs> well, yes, but I, you could you could tell I'm a gardener. Everything grows. So, <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, and th- that's one of the things that it, it, it's associated with.
1: I was fascinated to read that the Romans thought it would grow, grow best if you if you screamed and cussed at it.
2: There were a couple. That and, um, uh, actually, parsley is one of the other ones that has a similar tradition. The, the, one of the traditions was that parsley had to go to the devil seven times before mm-hmm. it would germinate. But parsley was also one that was associated with uh, a woman being the, uh, the boss of the home. Oh, uh, Yes, yes, <laughs> and, uh, Shakespeare actually mentions that in the Taming of the Shrew, where it said, uh, at one point, if I can c- quote it correctly, uh, I know a woman who was wed, we- uh, cause this one, of course, Taming of the Shrew was talking about, uh, dealing with women who were not keeping their place in the home and that, all that issue, which we won't get into here. But, but it's basically, I know a woman who was wed, when she went out to the garden to collect her parsley. And we, it's, a, it's something that completely goes over uh, the, our modern heads, but the persons listening to that would recognize that parsley was symbolic of an overly dominant female. And that's what How it meant them. Yes, yes. Oh, uh, that's just That's fun. Like, yeah, and Romeo and Juliet. Juliet's nurse at one point is talking to Romeo, and she's she's making a bad bungle of it at the, in the, her talking because she tended to, to to chatter on. But she was bringing up Rosemary and how Rosemary began with an R, and so did Romeo. And he and she was what she was obliquely trying to remind him is that Rosemary is for remembrance, and Rosemary was traditionally. Um, Carried by the uh, bridesmaids at a wedding ceremony and handed to the groom as a symbol of the remembrance that he needed to have for the for the vows he was making that day. And so Juliet, Juliet's nurse was reminding him in an oblique way, you know, you're you're making important promises to my charge, and I you know want to make sure that you're going to follow through.
1: Oh, cool. Now, you bring up rosemary, and I know that I used to get questions all the time, and I still do from some of my northern friends, about growing rosemary. Now, here in the south, the only thing we have to worry about is it drowning, because usually it's yeah. warm enough here in yeah. the winter for it to grow. But my northern friends have difficulty. You know, they, up there, it doesn't survive the winter, and they bring it into the house in the winter time, and it invariably dies before st- spring. Do you have a tip for them about that? <sighs> Other than to treat it like an annual and just get a new one?
2: Well, that,
1: again, the,
2: the thing really to remember is where it is native to. Uh, rosemary are, comes from the Latin rosmarinus, which means dew of the sea, um, because the, the, the Romans uh, thought of it as the, the plant that grows along the hillsides in the, in the Greek and, and, and Italian isles of the Mediterranean. You know, that's, that's hot, exposed, rocky area. Uh, my experience with rosemary has been that it's most likely to be uh, killed by too much water than not enough, and, mm-hmm. and at least in, in uh, certainly in our area, and I would suspect in the cooler climates. If you were bringing it indoors, don't think in terms of it like being a tropical plant that needs to be watered on a regular basis, like you, as you would your, your tropical plants indoors. I, I, w- I would keep the, the soil relatively dry, and just you know, don't don't keep it absolutely dry. But you really want the plant to remain dormant, not dead, but dormant in
1: the in the winter. Ah, uh, and that may be part of the problem because they do treat it like a house plant, and of course uh, yeah. you fertilize it yeah. and. Oh, okay. And if it's yeah. if it's dormant, so they would also want to keep it in a cooler room too, not near a register. I would assume if it's going to be Red, dormant oh, in the yeah. winter. That yes, that is
2: especially in in the the colder areas, because yes, in the when it's really cold and there's snow outside, of course you're going to be turning the heat on. I've more than once I've had people say that suddenly you know the winter came and suddenly their plants started to die and they weren't sure why, and I asked if it was near the the heat registers. And we, mm-hmm. In the summer, we don't think about it. And it's not a problem, but if you don't move it away from that, it's going to get basically burned from all that heat.
1: Yeah, and, of course, the winter dry air when, when we yeah. have a string of really cold days, and then the heat's yeah. on and it dries out the air further. Um, yeah. Are there any other um, – that's a, a problem for my northern friends. A problem that a lot of our southern gardeners have is with lavender uh-huh. are, and, and other fuzzy leaf plants. Yes. Because it's so humid, and it rains yes. so often some years.
2: Yes, yes. That is a problem. Uh, again, lavender is is one of those hot, dry climate ones. Uh, I have found that in the south, it, when you have high, higher humidity, that the uh, hybrid lavenders tend to grow better. They're, they're, when they have a combination of the French, what's commonly referred to as the French and the English lavender, a hybrid between the two is more likely to survive. But, yeah, you're, you're very right. Um, what I like with rosemary, lavender is easily killed by too much moisture in the in the soil. If they suspect that they have problems, the grower suspects they have problems with that, try a raised bed. Get it up out of the moisture, out of, out of the wet. Um, I remember one horrid summer here in Texas where we had an excess amount of rain, um, uh, and I had some of the lavender growers in Texas. I remember one lavender grower; they lost ninety percent of their crop because it, it it basically flooded out. I mean, in the heat of summer, it flooded out. But, you, but lavender is just not happy with too much water.
1: I have a friend that grew lavender, and she had wide overhangs on her house, and she grew it under there. Where and she turned off the sprinkler to that area, so the only moisture. That it got was what she did, did deliberately, and that seemed to help, so some of yeah. our listeners might want to give that a try too, but that's a good tip about the uh about the the crosses being tougher because I know they say it used to be said here to grow Spanish lavender, yeah. but i don't think a lot of people consider that to be lavender
2: yeah yeah I, I know I know what you mean yeah the, but the hybrids um the the, the grosso lavenderum tr- goodness of course now my my mind but basically any of the are sometimes referred to as lavendins L-A-V-A-N-D-I-N, um those are more likely to to survive in a humid
1: climate definitely okay um, how can people get their books and how can people learn more about herbs?
2: Well, um, the Homegrown Herb Garden book is available uh, through Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, uh, Borders, um, wherever, as I say, wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> uh, Your local
1: independent bookstore.
2: Yes, should be there, too. Uh, the author is Leisha Baker Morgan, my co-author, and myself, Ann McCormick. Um, of course, they're welcome to come and visit my, my website, which is theherbancowgirl.com and that's H-E-R-B-N. Cowgirl H-E-R-B-N-C-O-W-G-I-R-L .com I'm also on uh, Facebook um, You can find me there Where I, I post Occasionally uh, And I'd be You know Happy to hear Their questions I, I do pay attention and, do, and try to respond Whenever I get a question As far as that goes I think that this. I'm really pleased With this book I think it has A nice combination Where you can Learn how to Grow the herbs uh, We have 15 different Herbs that we Selected and then uh, my uh, co-author Lisa, she tells you how to grow, uh, use them in things like, oh, a, a lovely scallops, dishers, lemongrass, I'm looking, springtime vegetable serve, stir fry, spicy steamed mushrooms in a coconut broth, oh, some really interesting things. Uh, so definitely
1: t- take a look at the book and you'll see something I'm sure you'll want to try at home. And it's obvious that she did some training as a French chef too, isn't it? She did. She's got quite a bit of of nice French-looking recipes. Yes, I think there's. I think everybody's going to find something that they're going to enjoy in this book. (laughs) Let me (laughs) hope so. And I will put links to your book and to your website on our Facebook page. And, we, and of course, people are always welcome to ask questions. It's America's Homegrown Veggies show on the, uh, America's Homegrown Veggies on Facebook, and we will um, be happy to answer you on that. That's about all the time that we have this week. But I'd like to thank you again, Anne, for coming on. I just enjoyed the heck out of it.
2: Well, thank you. Appreciate it. I always love talking about my favorite
1: subject, herbs. Okay. Thanks again. And that's all the time we have today, but we'll be back talking more gardening next week on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I hope you'll join us. This is
0: AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a non-profit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you.
2: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale
1: that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for
2: Energy, only on America's Web Radio.
0: This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com,
4: the best in chat radio designed just for you.